the story of Esther ends with a celebration feast. And today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah is serving up a generous helping of its traditions and details to help you better understand and appreciate it. Learn why this feast in particular is a reminder of God's faithfulness as David wraps up the series, Esther, for such a time as this, with the conclusion of his message, The Feast of Purim. You know, God, uh, as we've learned, uh, loves to celebrate with his people. It comes as a great surprise to many people that God loves the joy of his people. God loves the smiles on our faces. He loves for us to celebrate our spiritual victories. He is in the exaltation of our worship and our praise. And certainly that is true in this last session that we're going to learn about from the book of Esther. We're studying the Feast of Purim, a celebratory remembrance of all that God has done for his people. We'll get there in just a moment. Let me tell you that uh, tomorrow we'll begin a new series from the world of theology. Tomorrow we're going to start a series called The God You May Not Know as we look at the attributes of God. Who is God? What is he like? What can we know about him? It's from a book that I wrote, and there's a study guide and a book that we'll make available to you. But uh, I'm very excited about this series. I know it will be an encouragement to you. We have a great God, and certainly we should celebrate Him all the time. During this month, we've made available to you a very special resource by O.S. Hawkins called 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim. The title of the book is The Promise Code. Each entry contains a Bible promise and a reading that illuminates that promise. There's a prayer that will stay with you throughout your week and a code verse to memorize. It's yours for a gift of any amount to Turning Point. When you ask for this resource, we'll send it to you right away. All right, this is part two of the Feast of Purim and the final lesson from the book of Esther. At the second banquet, when the king finally asked Esther, what do you want? Esther pleads for her people. And she says to Ahasuerus that she and her people are in danger. And that's the first time that Ahasuerus knew that Esther was a Jewess. And now he realizes that what has been signed in decree by Haman with the signet ring that Ahasuerus gave him has not only jeopardized all the Jewish people of the entire Persian kingdom, but has jeopardized his own wife whom he loves. And he is at a loss to know what to do. And so he says to Esther, who is the person who is responsible for this? And I always think about Nathan the prophet when I come to this point. You remember Nathan when he confronted David? He stuck his bony finger in David's nose and said, thou art the man? Well, I think Esther turned at that second banquet and pointed to Haman. And he said, there is the enemy of the Jews who is trying to kill all of us. And I just love the drama of the story because it was such an awesome moment that King Ahasuerus didn't know what to do. He was beside himself in the scriptures as he got up and he walked out into the night air and he was trying to get control of his emotions. He was so upset and so angry. And as he's out there in the night air, Haman knows this is his last shot at saving his own neck. And so he begins to plead with Esther. And he goes and he begins to talk to her and plead for his own life. And Esther was stretched out on the couch having eaten the dinner. She was in the normal position for a person who was eating a magnificent dinner. She was on the couch and Haman went over and began to beg her. 
And he got very involved and very much uh, into his pleading for his life and literally began to get on the couch with Esther. And just at that moment, King Ahasuerus walks back in the room. And he says, hey, isn't it enough that you're trying to get my wife killed and now you're trying to force her or rape her right in my own house? And that was it for Haman. I mean, he was dead. And the gallows that he had constructed the day before on which he had hoped to hang Mordecai became the death place for his own body. And they hung him up 75 feet high for everybody to see. That solved the problem of Haman, but that didn't solve the problem of the decree that had gone out for the Jews. And so Mordecai is now elevated to even more power. Esther is given all of Haman's property. Mordecai is given the opportunity now to overturn the decree. Well, not really overturn it, but to sign a new decree that superseded the old one because you know how the law of the Medes and Persians is. Can't change anything that's been written. So Mordecai and Esther put forth a new decree, and that decree goes out to all the provinces that on the day when the Jews were supposed to be exterminated, they could defend themselves. And did they defend themselves? We learned that they put forth such an overwhelming attack upon the anti-Semites of the Persian Empire that the nationals who joined with them and the Jewish people of that day killed 75,000 Persians in two days and the enemies of the Jews were put to rest and the Jews were allowed to live and Esther kept her life and once again God overturned the efforts of those who tried to destroy his people remember we are learning that God had promised to Abraham back in the 12th chapter of Genesis I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you The only verses I know in the Bible that dictate national policy are those verses. And I tell you, my friends, if we don't listen to those verses, we will be like Haman and all of the others before him who have paid a dear price to be on the wrong side of God's people, Israel. And now the salvation of the Jews in terms of their own physical life has been wrought and it's time to party. And God is good at partying. Have you noticed that? I know a lot of people don't understand that. I think sometimes we have such a picture of God that he's so austere that he is not interested in joy and happiness. But I'll tell you what, when we get to heaven, that's all going to be forgotten. We are going to have one grand and glorious celebration. And this is a celebration. And if you read down in your Bibles in verses 20 and 21 says, And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to establish this among them, that they should keep the 14th day of Adar and the 15th day of the same yearly as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, from mourning unto a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy and of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. In other words, that was the month when it all got turned around. Instead of being the victims, they were the victors. Instead of being the conquered, they were the conquerors. Instead of being annihilated, they were liberated. What a turnaround. What a reason for a party. And according to the 24th verse, we read, And Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast, now watch that little phrase, had cast purr 
That is the lot to consume them and to destroy them. When they cast lots to determine the best day to destroy the Jews, the Hebrew expression of that is to cast per. And the celebration of the Jews, victorious in that moment, was known as the Feast of Purim, as a reminder of the time when lots were cast to destroy them and the lot was turned back on the destroyer. And so the Feast of Purim has become a part of the Jewish festivals to this very day. It is one of the most wonderful occasions in Jewish history. Purim is the Hebrew word for lot, and it is in remembrance of the lot that was cast by wicked Haman to determine the month and day on which the Jewish people of Persia were to be killed. And ironically, the lots that were thrown for Israel's destruction ended up being the very time in which the date for the new national celebration was set because they had been victorious. Sometimes the Feast of Purim is known as the Feast of Esther. In the books that come between the Old and New Testament, the non-canonical books, the book of 2 Maccabees, refers to it as Mordecai's Day. That's all right. <laughs> Purim commemorates the deliverance of God's people at the hands of Esther and of Mordecai. And I want to tell you just a little bit as we close this all down and kind of bring this book to a conclusion. I want to tell you a little bit about that feast because it's truly amazing. It is held usually during a late winter time. It's the last feast of the year on the Jewish calendar. It is on the Jewish calendar. It occurs on the 14th day of Adar, which we don't know anything about what that means. Basically, that's sometime in late February or early March. It is only one month to the day before the Feast of Passover. In Jerusalem today, Purim is celebrated on Adar 15, one day later than the rest of the world. And this is in commemoration of the fact that the Jews in ancient Persia in Shushan, the palace, did not rest from fighting their enemies until the following day. Remember when Esther went back before the king and said, let me have one more day. Give me one more day to finish this up. And so the Jews in the palace, according to chapter 9 and verse 18, they fought for one more day. This today in Israel is known as Shushan Purim because it reminds us of the extra work that was done by the Jews in that time. Now, if you read the book of Leviticus in the 23rd chapter where all the feasts of Israel are listed, you won't find the Feast of Purim. It was a feast that was established long after Moses, but it is nonetheless a wonderful feast, and interestingly enough, it is the best-known Jewish holiday added to the calendar since the time of Moses. And if you want to see where it is listed, look with me at chapter 9 in this text that we're looking at, verse 17 through 19 we've already read. Look down at verse 26. Wherefore they called these days Purim after the name of Pur. Therefore all the words of this letter and of that which they had seen concerning this matter and which had come unto them, verse 29 says, Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. And then notice verses 31 and 32, to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed according as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them and as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed the matters of the fastings and their cry and the decrees of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. 
So the Feast of Purim is all right here from the book of Esther. And the details of this feast are quite interesting. Sometimes today when the feast is celebrated, it is celebrated, first of all, by a fast day. The fast of Esther. You remember when Esther had to go before the king and she was so afraid she had everybody fast. And so sometimes the Jews today in preparation for the Feast of Purim will enjoy a time of fasting in commemoration of the time when Esther fasted as according to the fourth chapter, verse 16. When the feast itself is being celebrated, the most prominent thing in the feast is the reading of the scroll of Esther. And it's quite an interesting thing they do. They have a handwritten scroll of Esther, handwritten, and it is read in the evening service, and then it is read again the next day during the morning synagogue service. And the book of Esther is known as the Megalah, the scroll in Hebrew. It is the best known of the five books of the Hebrew Bible known as the scrolls. And these scrolls are short and read on different holidays. Each of the scrolls read on a different Jewish holiday. For instance, the Song of Solomon is read on the Passover. And the book of Ruth is read on the Feast of Weeks. And the book of Ecclesiastes is read on the Feast of Tabernacles. And Esther is read on the Feast of Purim. During Purim, the divine command to blot out the name of Amalek is taken literally. When Haman's name is read from the scroll of Esther, it is met by a thunderous roar of clapping from the Jewish people. They not only clap, they stamp their feet and they boo and they make a grinding noise with some special noisemakers that they bring to this feast which are called groggers. And they turn these things around and they grind and make a terrible noise. So you'll be reading the scroll of Esther at the Feast of Purim, and every time Haman's name is read, everybody starts clapping and stomping and booing and making these noisemakers go. I mean, that'd be something to see, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you like to sneak into the Jewish Feast of Purim after reading the book of Esther and just see what that would be like? Wow. One tradition that is uh, part of some of the Jewish celebration is that (laughs) they would write Haman's name on the bottom of their shoes. And as their feet were stamped during the reading of the scroll, Haman's name was literally erased on the bottom of their feet. And there's another tradition known as beating Haman, involved in building an effigy, a likeness of Haman, which is then hung and burned. Uh, This was abandoned during the Middle Ages when anti-Semitic slanders were leveled that the Jewish people burned a figure of Jesus on the cross during Purim, and so they decided not to do that anymore. I tell you what, when they celebrate the Feast of Purim, they remember that they had an enemy and that God delivered that enemy into their hands. Then they do something else that I like a lot. They take an offering. Oh, I think that's great. I mean, every joyous occasion should be accompanied by an offering. Amen? But anyway, before the reading of the scroll, it is customary to pass a plate in the synagogue in remembrance of the ancient time for each of the Israelite males to bring a one-half shekel toward the maintenance of the temple. And it's an interesting thing what they do. They will place silver coins, such as a silver dollar or a half dollar, on the plate that is circulated. Each worshiper places a gift of money on the plate so that the silver coin then becomes his. And the coins are picked up off of the plate and then immediately donated back to the plate, fulfilling the ancient command. And the collection is usually given to help the poor. 
Because as you noticed when we read Esther chapter 9, that part of the celebration is giving gifts to the poor. And then not only do they give this half shekel to the temple, but it's a time of giving. Notice what it says in verse 22, that they send portions one to another and gifts to the poor. It is a time of giving. And they take portions of food and delicacies to friends This Purim tradition is continued even today. The outward expression of joy involves sending a plate full of cake or pastries or fruit and nuts by the hand of a child to friends and relatives. It is customary to give gifts to at least two poor persons during Purim so that they may be able to enjoy the festival. Isn't that a marvelous way to celebrate? Not only to take into consideration your own joy, but to look around for others who may not have that which they enjoy. I often think of this when we have our food offering on Communion Sunday, we come to celebrate the Lord's table, which is our great feast of remembrance, isn't it? And when we come, we bring gifts for the poor and we stack them up on the table out there. It's great Jewish tradition that we celebrate our feast that way. It's a time of special holiday foods because one of the things that happens during the Feast of Purim, the most popular food for Purim is known as a Hamantaschen. A hamantaschen are delicious triangular pastries filled with poppy seed or prune filling. Their name is derived from two German words, mon, poppy seed, and taschen, pockets. And according to tradition, hamantaschen are reminiscent of Haman's three-cornered hat that he used to wear. And hamantaschen are often served for breakfast on the day of the Feast of Purim. And then there's another festive dish that they eat called kreplock. Have you heard of that? Kreplock is noodle-like triangular pieces of dough that are stuffed with chopped meat and minced onion filling and served in a thick steaming soup. And that's a Jewish Purim dish. And they eat all this food and it's a time of gladness. And it's one of the happiest holidays in the Jewish calendar because it was a time of great joy when God overturned the enemies of the Jews, and gave victory to his people. There's a wonderful irony in this book, I'm sure you've noticed, one that you cannot get away from. And that is, throughout the whole book, you see what is apparent, and then at the end you find out what was real. Let me just close all of this with a brief discussion about what is apparent and what is real. Because that's where we are, is it not? We live in a world where apparently, often, we are the defeated. But we know that in reality, we are the victors. (laughs) We live in a world where often, apparently, we are the underdog. But we know, because we've read the end of the story, that we're the upper dogs. (laughs) We're God's people. We're kings and priests of his kingdom. Just think about the irony of the book of Esther for a moment. Haman built the gallows for Mordecai, but he himself was hung on those gallows. Haman was trying to solidify his position in the kingdom, but his position was given instead to Mordecai. Haman tried to kill Mordecai's people, but he and all 10 of his sons and all of those who hated the Jews were instead killed. Haman tried to wipe out the worship of the true God, I never thought of this one, which prevented men from bowing to him, 
but instead many of the people of the land became Jews for the fear of the Jews fell upon them Esther 8:17 when you go through that book it's just uncanny how much irony there is in what was apparent and what was real and you know i just get so encouraged when i read that because sometimes I'm just like the rest of you. I have eyes of flesh. I look out and see what's going on in the world. And it sometimes seems quite apparent that something's very wrong. But that's not real. What's real is God is on his throne. What's real is he's in control. What's real is that while we can't always understand what he's up to, we are going to win. We are victors and conquerors in Jesus Christ. And the exciting thing for the Jewish people is that one day there is going to be a time of greater deliverance for the Jewish people than just out of the physical danger of their life. There's coming a time when all Israel shall be saved. I don't pretend to understand all of that, but I know that one of the verses the people of Israel read from the Old Testament during the Feast of Purim is a verse that talks about their ultimate deliverance and it literally has in it the Hebrew word Emmanuel, which is the word for Jesus, God with us. And the salvation of the Jews will one day be accomplished in completeness, even as it is being completely accomplished in the lives of some people today. A Jewish boy came up to me and he said, I am a completed Jew. I have trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. But he said, Pastor Jeremiah, I have to ask you a question. If Jesus comes back, as you say he is, my parents have been Jews all of their lives, historically orthodox, good people. If Jesus comes back, what will happen to them? You know, there are times when you just wish you could make up an answer. And I couldn't make up an answer. And I said to him, you know, anybody who goes to heaven will only be there for one reason. It's because of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And your parents will have to go to heaven the same way you're going to heaven, through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. So he said, if they don't know Jesus Christ as their Messiah, they won't go to heaven. I said, that's right. I'll never forget what he said. He said, I've been rather reluctant to talk with them because I know it's going to be hard. But he said, you know, I guess I better get after this, hadn't I? I said, yeah. Yeah, you better get after it because you never know when the trumpet will sound and the voice of the archangel will be heard. Oh, listen, folks, we have a wonderful future with our Lord. And the book of Esther is just another reminder to us that we have a great and sovereign God who is in control as he cared for his people during that time of potential annihilation. He continues to care for his people today, and he cares for us who are spiritual Israel as well. And we thank God for it. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we've had a wonderful study in the book of Esther. And uh, we know something more about it than we did before. And it's surely a book you want to review and study more than once because the story of redemption is on every page. Tomorrow we uh, begin a new series called The God You May Not Know that will take us through the month of April. We begin tomorrow with a lesson called Knowing the God You Worship. You know, a lot of people worship God but don't really know 
that in many ways God has revealed himself to us in the Scripture. Certainly, we can never uh, fathom God. We can never completely comprehend him, or we would be his equal or greater, and that's certainly not ever going to happen. But we should never complain about what we don't understand about God until we try to understand everything he's revealed about himself. And we're going to work on that starting tomorrow and into the month of April. We still have the opportunity for you to get a copy of um, the resource for this month, which is The Promise Code by O.S. Hawkins. That will be available for the rest of March, which is today in two more days, and then it goes away. So don't wait. If you haven't already sent your gift to Turning Point for this month, please do that and ask for your copy, and the book will be on its way to you before you know it. See you next time. I'm David Jeremiah. Today's message came to you from Shadow Mountain Community Church, where Dr. David Jeremiah serves as senior pastor. To give us an update on how God is using this ministry, write to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or call 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of the latest book from O.S. Hawkins, The Promise Code, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app to instantly access our content or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we begin The God You May Not Know on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. If you want a deeper relationship with God, then learn to trust His promises. The Promise Code by O.S. Hawkins will help you understand how to count on God's promises. And it's yours with a gift of any amount to Turning Point this month. When you give $60 or more, you'll receive the Promise Code set, which includes Esther's CD album, study guide, historical chart, and Bible promises at a glance booklet. Learn more and donate when you go to davidjeremiah.ca. Turning Point presents the Jeremiah Study Bible, drawing on more than 40 years of study by Dr. David Jeremiah. Take your personal Bible study deeper with unique introductions to each book of the Bible. 55 full-page articles exploring the essential themes of the Christian life. 8,000 study notes with insightful and practical content, an extensive cross-reference system, and helpful sidebars that extend to topics beyond the study notes. You can also take advantage of online resources available to you at jeremiahstudybible.com. Great for individual or small group studies, this Bible is available in the New King James and New International versions in standard or large print, as well as the English Standard Version in standard print with several cover options. For more information or to order your copy, go to davidjeremiah.ca slash jsb. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash jsb. William and Catherine Booth were the founders of the Salvation Army. It was their daughter, Evangeline, who succeeded William Booth as the leader of the organization. She wrote something amazing about how her parents taught her about Christianity. Very early, she said, I saw my parents working for their people, bearing their burdens, day and night, 
they did not have to say a word to me about Christianity. I saw it in action. That seems to echo what Jesus said about those who follow him, that our light should so shine in this world that people see God through our good works. And this is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover how to reveal God to others on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.